Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello, welcome to the podcast. I'm Sarah Dowdy, and I am very happy to be here with a very special guest today. Hi, everybody. It's Candace. She's back. Vintage Stuff You Missed in History Class podcasting. Well, and Candace, we always get emails asking where you've gone or where you are. And I usually just say, she's sitting right behind me in the cube. But, I mean, you could probably elaborate a little more than that. Well, I have switched my focus from history to weddings, which is actually a lot of fun. I've been working on the TLC Weddings website, and if you haven't visited yet, you really should. Even if you're not planning a wedding yourself, you can get some fun information on modern trends and classic trends. Fashion tips. Fashion tips, flower tips. All of that. And one more fun piece of vintage stuff you missed in history class news that pertains to weddings. One of your other favorite hosts from the days of yore, Jane McGrath, just recently got engaged. So she'll be flooding that website, too. Congratulations, Jane. And um, I'm very excited to record this episode with you, Candace. And so we actually picked a theme that was sort of fitting with Candace's new role at HowStuffWorks and TLC, um, and that is, of course, weddings. And when we pick these five weddings, I told Sarah we should pick some of our favorite weddings in history, and all but one turned out to have rather sad endings. So we're going to start with the happiest, and when we're done, go ahead and get out your vintage lace hankies, because it all goes downhill yeah, from here. very lovely weddings, but some kind of sad marriages. marriages that's we, right. We picked tragedies, I guess. But yeah, this first one is good. And it's probably one of the best known historical weddings, I'd say, just because of how many wedding trends it ultimately established. Right. We'll say that the marriage of Victoria and Albert on February 10th, 1840, set some precedents for modern brides. And most of you probably know that the reason brides today wear white is because Victoria started that tradition. She started so many trends. She did. I think using ether during childbirth. That's a cool Victoria trend. Thanks for that, Victoria. (laughs) So here's a little history on Victoria. She became queen in 1837, and she was just 18 years old. And her wedding was the first one since 1554 when a throned queen took a husband. And we mentioned that she set the tone for modern weddings by wearing white, but she also chose when to wed and and whom. Yeah, they were a love match, which was something quite surprising for royalty in general at the time, but especially a queen choosing who she's going to marry. And the person she chose was Albert, who was her German cousin, the prince consort. They met in 1836 and were engaged just three years later. And while I personally hate snakes and demanded a big honking diamond, Victoria asked, or received rather, a a snake ring with diamond eyes. Which seems so punk for Victoria. I know. (laughs) It's just not in keeping at all with the woman I imagine her. But I guess snakes are more of a trend back then? It was a symbol, actually. The snake's coil symbolized the bonds of eternal love, just like we think of the circle of a wedding band. Okay, so kind of, a, kind of a Cleopatra style, I guess. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> um, but I, I, this is an old superstition, I guess, that a rainy wedding day is actually good luck. And maybe in this case, it proved true because they had a rainy wedding day, but ultimately a very happy marriage together. 
They did. It was an early wedding. It was in the, the middle of the day, and it was followed by a breakfast celebration. It took place at St. James's Palace, and they had a very grand procession from Buckingham Palace to St. James's, and the procession included her 12 bridesmaids. And I mentioned she had a white gown, which was unusual for the time, because before her, any time a royal got married, she would wear a very heavy brocade gown and lots of jewels, an ermine cloak, and she wanted something lighter and more feminine. But the one aristocratic element that she did demand was handmade lace. Yeah, didn't it take about 200 people to make all of the lace? It did. And by this time in the Victorian era, uh, a lot of fabric making was automated or machine made, but so she that was a real handmade. That's right. Yeah. So it was a happy day and an even happier wedding night. We have a little glimpse from Victoria's journal, and she had this to say about it. The wedding night was all moonlight and roses and a fair wind and the pleasures of sex. So sounds like a good time for a nice, satisfied queen. cousin couple. <laughs> um, but I mean, they go on to have a very successful marriage and a successful reign. It's actually debt free, which is kind Huge. of amazing considering um, how much a queen would normally spend. Right. But that just goes to demonstrate one of the, the concepts that we associate with Victorianism. And that's thrift, for instance. Frugality. Exactly. Right. And Gillian Gill, who's a biographer who wrote We Too about Victoria and Albert, she says that their relationship illustrates so many different Victorian concepts. And these are just a few. You've got faith and thrift, which we've mentioned, mm-hmm. discipline, patriotism, responsibility, and stability. They really were a model for the whole country. They also have a very fruitful marriage. They have nine kids, and they also help popularize that family portrait of, you know, the doting mother and the dutiful father and all of their babies and children surrounding them. Which is needless to say that when Albert died in 1861, Victoria was just crushed. Those had been some of the happiest years of her life, and without him, she became very depressed and more black until her death in 1901 when she died from natural causes. Our next wedding and marriage on this list is going to be equally grand, but a lot more tragic than the last. It's also a royal wedding, though. It's Louis XIV and Maria Theresa of Spain. Um, so we're going to give a little background on this, just because the circumstances of the couple's birth are really interesting, I think. So Louis XIV was a surprise. The French were really hoping for an heir, but his mother was... 36, almost 37 years old, and she hadn't given birth to a living child yet. Then all of a sudden, out comes Louis XIV, this healthy baby boy. And only five days later, his mother Anne's brother, Philip IV, who is the king of Spain, uh, has a daughter. And Anne is immediately thinking, oh, well, perfect. As most modern mothers would. (laughs) Marry your cousin. This little niece of mine can someday be the wife of my son. This was especially an especially tantalizing match because Maria Teresa had a claim to the Spanish throne at one point. So it would be a, a very nice match for the king of France. But, okay, so they're not just cousins. This is a little disturbing to modern listeners, probably. They're double cousins. So they're the product of a French brother and sister married to a Spanish brother and sister. Um, and actually, one of the families is the Habsburgs, too. And they're notoriously inbred already. So it's amazing that 
this line continues, it's actually a successful match. Um, but it doesn't seem like this marriage is necessarily going to happen for a while. And that's because Spain and France are just constantly at war with each other. Um, but guess what? Finally, they work out a peace in the Peace of the Pyrenees in 1659. And a major part of the deal is going to be cementing the alliance with this marriage between cousins. Yes. And Louis had actually already found his first great love, but he was prepared to do his part and to marry Maria Theresa. And similarly, she's ready to do her part for God and country and family as well. Yeah. And she's had this rather sad childhood, too, as as so many of these royal kids do. She loses her mother really early. Um, so I think she's looking forward to having a new maternal figure in Anne of Austria, her aunt, who has really taken her on as a protege almost her entire life. After the engagement was arranged, Louis wrote to Maria Theresa, It was not without constraint that I yielded up till now to the arguments which prevented me from expressing to your majesty the sentiments of my heart. And then he continued, I am delighted to begin to reassure her majesty by these lines that happiness could not arrive at anyone who more passionately wishes for it, nor anyone feel themselves happier in possessing it. So that's a nice, sweet letter. It's in very formal terms, but Phil before thinks it's a little too much for his daughter to even (laughs) be receiving, won't let her read the letter. Uh, Finally, the proxy marriage goes through, which I've always thought is so such a strange custom, but I guess you don't want to send your unmarried virgin daughter off across Europe alone, um, unless she's this legally wedded woman. But they have this proxy marriage in Spain. It's near the border. It takes place on June 3rd, 1660. And of course, Louis isn't there. That's why it's a proxy marriage. There's this Spanish dignitary. So I, I just can't imagine how strange it would be to go up there, have all the vows read and recited, and there's this stranger standing next to you. Yes, this proxy ceremony was definitely not a precursor of the modern wedding. And what made it even stranger for uh, the French is that Maria Teresa was decidedly Spanish. Yes. I mean, think of those wide skirts you might recognize in Velazquez paintings, because, of course, Velazquez is the court painter at the time. Um, she also has these piles of false hair, this sort of bouffant-styled hairdo. Kind of like a 1660 snooky almost. <laughs> I guess so. All these jewels. I, I think the French people in attendance were kind of shocked, maybe a little disappointed, disapproving of this future queen of theirs. But, you know, what are you going to do? Not much. So now she becomes Marie Therese, and she's ready for Louis. Yeah, so France's royal party has been on the way. It takes a while to get to Spain in these days. And the wedding is planned for June 9th near Bordeaux. Queen Anne is so excited. This is her lifelong, or not her lifelong, but (laughs) as long as her son's been around. This has been her dream for him. And she's really sweet, too. She even writes to Marie um, back when the engagement is set up, addressing her as her daughter and her niece. So she's definitely looking forward to bringing this new daughter into her life. And this is a wedding at its best. It's essentially a family reunion, too, which is what weddings really are today. Yeah, definitely. So the couple catch their first glimpse of each other when the brother and sister, Philip and Anne, are finally reunited after 44 44 years, years, which is unbelievable. I can't 
imagine going. Well, you're an only child. <laughs> I am an only child, so I guess I really can't imagine. <laughs> she really can't. <laughs> but I mean, it, it's just a strange, um, I mean, they're in contact with each other during that mm-hmm. time, but how strange to be at war with your own brother's with your, country. Right, with your sibling. Um, they have a very restrained meeting, these two siblings, after so long. They don't hug each other, but they both apparently had tears in their eye. But meanwhile, the young people are trying to figure out how to catch a little glimpse of each other. <laughs> what am I getting into? What does he look like? What does she look like? Exactly. Um, Louis is given permission to ride near the window of the chamber where this meeting is happening and where um, Maria is. And instead of being discreet and riding by kind of far away, just getting his little peek at her. He wants to come disguised to the door and actually meet her. He's not allowed to do this. Um, Maria is not allowed to acknowledge his salute, but they do get to catch this glimpse of each other. And he pronounces that she'll be easy to love. And she admits that he is certainly very handsome, which Louis had a major reputation for being a handsome guy in his youth. So despite his dashing good looks, when she has to leave Spain, she's very tearful. This is goodbye to home, and she knows that her new life is about to begin. And this is a very grave matter for someone of her age. Yeah, definitely. So the real marriage happens just a couple of days later, June 9th, and it takes place in this 13th century church. And I think this is such an interesting detail, but... It's such a big deal that the wedding happens here that the door the couple passes through is blocked up after the ceremony. It's still blocked up today, so if you wanted to go through it, too bad. You could not lock down that aisle. No. Um, and she, I, I guess her style gets a little more French in the, in the days between the proxy marriage and this marriage. She wears a gown covered in fleur-de-lis and her hair, she doesn't have all this fake snooky hair on anymore. She has her nice thick blonde hair. It's actually so thick that they can't really attach the crown to it very well. And her train is carried by two princesses and uh, she cuts as much of a figure as she can, I guess. She's very pale. She has these bright blue eyes. She has a Habsburg lip, which we would not really regard as a very beautiful feature nowadays. But at the time... Status symbol. Yeah, it meant you were... You were royalty. You were inbred, inbred royalty. royalty. <laughs> Good job. Exactly. Meanwhile, Louis is in black velvet and jewels. And immediately after the ceremonial dinner, he escorts her to the boudoir. Yeah, and Anne closes the curtains on them, which I think would be a little awkward. I guess it's good they didn't stick around. That happens with some of the royal couples we've discussed before. The parents actually hang around. So this is a plus. Again, not not a tradition that is carried over into into modern weddings, <laughs> not thankfully. At all. Um and this is interesting. Supposedly Marie Therese uses the opportunity of their first night together to make Louis promise that he'll always spend the night with her, or at least he'll come to bed with her eventually. And, I mean, over the course of their marriage, there's some pretty late nights where he's out and about, but he really does always come back to her bed and then gets up and goes to his own room in the morning. She sleeps in, as many of the Spanish royals did. Uh, I, I just think that's a that's kind of a sweet gesture. It is. Well, and considering that he was her only family in her new home, it was important to her to have that continuity. Uh, So at least in bed, 
the relationship, the marriage, it's a good one. But from a practical point of view, whereas you may enjoy reading the newspaper with your spouse or going to the park or antiquing, they don't have anything to do together. No, and and one of the major problems there is she has not been taught French, or at least very good French, which seems like a very big oversight for somebody who might grow up to be the French queen. That's an integral part of a good marriage, speaking the same language, <laughs> I think it would literally. Help. I think it would definitely help. And she doesn't even really make a big effort to learn French. She sticks to all of her Spanish women and her dwarves and hangs out with her dogs. And she loves gambling and not all of the more intellectual pursuits that Louis is so fond of. She's not into dancing. She's really shy. Uh, you know, they just, they really don't they have don't click. much in common with each other. Um, I, I do think it's, it's interesting to learn a little bit about her though, because we think so much of Louis in relation to all of his famous mistresses. And we think about his later marriage, which actually Katie and I did a podcast on Madame de Maintenon, um, about a year ago. But I, I feel like his wife never really gets any play here. <laughs> Well, she certainly she had her play today, and and we will conclude her life story and the tale of their marriage by saying that she died after a very sudden illness at just age 45, and according to our records, one of the, the things that she said before leaving this world was, since I have been queen, I have had only one happy day. We don't know what day that was. Probably a dwarf day. Oh. A dog day. <laughs> Not the wedding day. Not the wedding day. And this is maybe even more tragic. After her death, Louis said, this is the first trouble she has ever given me. Which, oh, that's heartbreaking. It is. And on that note from Louis, let's flash forward to another very eligible bachelor of his time. And that is the dashingly handsome JFK Jr., and everyone in the United States who was around at the time of John Kennedy's death remembers little John John flashing his salute and being just the cutest child in, in the whole country. And as he got older, he became very handsome, very rugged, very outdoorsy, very athletic, and incredibly desirable. He was deemed the nation's most eligible bachelor. And he was 35 when he met the 29-year-old Carolyn Bissett. Yeah, and they dated for about two years. And the way they met is very modern and hip, I guess. It is. And people talk about Carolyn as being like the more modern version of a Jackie. She had the class. She had the posture. She had the carriage. She had the clothes. But she put a more contemporary spin on the things that she did. She was a publicist at Calvin Klein, and one of the things that she did for Calvin Klein was help celebrities pick clothes. And of course, JFK Jr. was quite a celebrity. So when he came in shopping for some suits, she was hooked up with him. And I would like to say that the rest was history, but it was a little complicated because they were never formally linked in the public eye. There were rumors abounding that he was still dating Daryl Hannah. And Carolyn, of course, being the, the sassy blonde she was, was a commodity in her own right. And at this time, JFK Jr. was the owner and co-editor of the political magazine, George. So very much on the New York social scene, very much a hot item. So who would have thought that this couple could have escaped to an island in the United States, gotten married, and no one knew about it. Yeah, suddenly they're married. It's it's unbelievable that they managed to get away with it. It was the ultimate secret wedding. 
And um, I, I have to brag a little bit because where they chose to wed, Cumberland Island, which is a barrier island in Georgia, it's just 18 miles by three miles. This is actually just off the peninsula where I grew up in St. Mary's, Georgia. And it's near where my grandfather grew up. So We both have claims to fame to Cumberland. And if you've never made it to Cumberland, you simply must go. It's gorgeous. There are fantastic ruins of great homes that were owned by the... Dungeness. Yes, they were owned by the Carnegie's back Back in the day, and there is still an inn, a fantastically expensive and luxurious inn, Greyfield, where you can stay, and wild horses roam the beach. Beautiful, untouched beaches. And there's no bridge either, so if you get there, you have to take a ferry. Yes. So Carolyn and JFK Jr. fly into the St. Mary's Airport, and uh, some women come out from the county courthouse to issue their marriage licenses, and they file for them separately. And like I said, there's been no formal engagement announcement, no formal wedding announcement. No one knows that this is happening. Not even the people involved in arranging the wedding, right? Well, there are a few people who have an idea as to what's going on, and that would include uh, Gogo Ferguson, whose family had lived on the island for six generations. She helped plan the wedding, and she designed their wedding bands. And then the White House Rose Garden designer, Rachel Bunny Mellon, was in the know. And the man who had been Jackie's lifelong butler did the altar greenery. But other people who were more, shall we say... The talent at the wedding. Thank you. The talent at the wedding. Like, for instance, the um, the Uly Florida man who came in to sing gospel a cappella. He had no idea that he'd be singing for JFK Jr. and Carolyn Bissett. And he describes how before the ceremony began, they pulled him aside and said, we'd really like for you to sing Amazing Grace. And he's sort of wide-eyed at this point. I can't believe this is happening. And if you look at the one picture that's so popular in the media of this wedding, it's of of John and Carolyn descending the steps of this 1893 cabin. It's essentially a cabin. It's the first African Baptist church on the island. There was no electricity, so the whole ceremony was illuminated by candlelight. And he's in a suit and his father's watch. And she's in this gorgeous pearl white silk crepe gown by Narcissa Rodriguez. And she's got silk gloves and a rolled silk tool veil and a hair clip that had belonged to Jackie. Oh, and he's kissing her hand. It's just Gorgeous. It's modern royalty. Well, and her gown kind of kicked off a look for that style, I'd say. It did. It's that uh, zipperless, over-the-head sheath. It's the opposite of the princess look. Exactly. It's that form-fitting style. And it's the kind of style that earned her this description in W Magazine when they called Carolyn a cool blonde with something sexy, even raunchy, about her. I like the little voice and emphasis you put on that Even one, raunchy <laughs> about her. But what was sweet about the wedding is that, according to at least one report, when she came down from the church steps, she was carrying a bouquet, a lily of the valley, and supposedly one of the wild horses of Cumberland came out and, and nibbled from it. And I think that might be sensational. I, I have... They're really shy. They are shy. And I had a friend once who went with me to the island when I was in college. And there are no porta potties on Cumberland once you hit the beach. And she was relieving herself behind a sand dune and a horse snuck up on her. But that is the closest I have ever heard of a horse coming to a human. They came. I I went on a class trip in about fourth grade. So it wouldn't have been too long before this wedding, actually. And the horses came up near our campsite. But as soon as they saw us, they were out of there, not nibbling on any bouquets. Well, maybe they knew that it was Carolyn Bissett Kennedy's bouquet. Well, anyway, so all of that aside, horse stories, etc., um, 
They had a, a very nice reception at the Grayfield Inn. It was perfectly intimate and private, only about 40 guests. And you may be thinking, 40 people? That's not even the whole Kennedy clan. Well, no, it wasn't. They had to leave some people out to ensure their privacy. And after the wedding occurred, it wasn't until Sunday afternoon, I believe, that the, the press kind of got a hint of what had happened. And by the time they descended on Cumberland, the couple was gone for their honeymoon in Turkey. And one of the earliest confirmations of the marriage came from Caroline Kennedy Schlossberg, who flashed a thumbs up sign at a reporter who took her picture. Pretty discreet Pretty family, discreet. I guess. Um, so this, unfortunately, it sounds like a lovely wedding, but it unfortunately culminated in a very tumultuous marriage. And some would say this is all part of the Kennedy curse, but the marriage did, did not work out as far as we can tell. And they were married for just a few short years before uh, their sad deaths, but uh, he wanted kids. She wasn't sure she wanted kids. They both accused each other of having affairs. They lived apart. Carolyn did not enjoy being scrutinized by the public. There are reports that she was depressed and continued to use cocaine. And her sister, Lauren, urged the two of them to reconcile and attend Rory Kennedy's wedding together in Martha's Vineyard. And this was in the summer of 1999. John agreed to fly all three of them in his single-engine plane, and as you may remember, it crashed in the ocean on July 16th, and Navy divers later recovered their bodies. So another tragic wedding on our list. But we have the beautiful picture, and I'm sure that that is how the couple would, would want to be remembered. So from one cool blonde to another, the next lady on our list is the beautiful Grace Kelly and her marriage to the Prince of Monaco, So Grace Kelly is definitely known for living up to her name. You know, she's stylish. She's beautiful. She was described by Alfred Hitchcock as a snow-covered volcano, just because when you look at her on screen, she looks so poised and collected, but there's so much emotion underneath. She seems like she could just erupt at any moment. And I, I think from what I read about her, that's kind of how she was in person. She was a very fiery woman who sort of kept it all in a neat package. And what was interesting about Grace Kelly is that she knew what she wanted in life, but her family didn't expect that much from her. No, they really didn't. She was uh, the third child of four of a very prominent Philadelphia family. She has these amazing athlete parents. Her father was an Olympian. Her mother was the first woman to teach phys ed at Penn. Um, but yeah, they, she didn't really live up to the, the family standards. She was really shy. She wasn't athletic. She was kind of sickly. She had asthma when she was a kid, but she was really serene and she was also really full of imagination. At, at one point, she told her older sister, one day I'm going to be a princess, which probably most little girls say that. I'm but sure. in this story, it seems like she's very telling active. line. <laughs> Um, and she gets into acting because of all that imagination. It's not something her family initially approves of, but she proves very good at it. And she had to train herself to speak in a, in a lower tone and less nasally. But I suppose when you're 
from a family of athletes and you can't play the field, you have to play on the stage. And she was determined to make that work. Yeah, she wasn't really well suited for the stage, though, um, partly because of that voice. She just didn't have much power behind it. But on camera, she was absolutely stunning. And she once she got going on this film career, it was this amazing burst of success and great films. She won an Academy Award. It's weird, though. It's not like she started with a few little parts and worked up from there. Most of her success comes from this one screen test from 1950, which she didn't even get the the part she was auditioning for. But it got shown around Hollywood, and she became an overnight success. She really did. John Ford saw it. Alfred Hitchcock saw it. They cast her, and she just went from there. She's also pretty well known in her Hollywood days for working out a really sweet studio deal. Studios at the time would basically make their stars sign their lives away. But she worked out a nice deal where she could be a little more flexible with the projects she chose. And it paid off. In 1955, she won an Oscar. She had four films in theaters, and she made more money than any other female star. So this is the pinnacle of her career. It looks like she's just going to keep on going and have decades ahead of her great success. And then suddenly... Suddenly she decides that despite dating around and hooking it with some very eligible bachelors, she wants to get married. Yeah, according to her friend and biographer Gwen Robbins, she didn't want to have to age in Hollywood, which I can kind of understand that, especially at this time. There just may have not been very many parts in another decade or two. But she meets her prince at the 1955 Cannes Film Festival. And this is, of course, Rainier Grimaldi. And he's the Prince of Monaco, which is a French principality. And it's it's tiny. It's a postage tiny. stamp. It's a postage stamp. Sarah, I think that you mentioned it was smaller than Central smaller Park. Smaller than Central Park. Um, but very beautiful, very picturesque. It It looks like old Europe. And so she sees that he's got an offer she can't refuse. And um, not only that, she has an offer that he can't refuse because his former girlfriend, also an actress, was barren. So he needs to ensure that he can create an heir. Otherwise, Monaco gets handed over Back to, to France. France. Yeah. So despite uh, Grace Kelly having all the, the features that he desires, he still demands that when they get married, uh, she hand over a $2 million dowry. Which, that's from life. I just, I can't get over that number. <laughs> I mean, she, her family was very well off and... and- she earned a lot of money herself. She did. But that is so much money in the 1950s. One of her last films is kind of interesting considering her future. It was called The Swan. And in it, she played a princess. So while Rainier was courting her, she was actually playing the part of a princess. The dress rehearsal, if you will. <laughs> exactly. And in the plot of the film, she's torn between her younger love and the prince who she's intended to marry. She ends up choosing the prince. It all works out for, for her story in the end. I can't imagine if that, if the movie had been a little different, it might have not fit very well. <laughs> and that film wrapped in December 1955, and that marked uh, their official engagement on December 28th. So just a few days after Christmas, she gets the best present ever, a 12-carat emerald-cut diamond flanked by two baguettes. 
She probably had to buy it herself. Considering that, that dowry. Million, you better get a good ring. And uh, what's funny ab- about all of these different subplots adding up into this, this one big arc of her storyline is that she was engaged at the time to fashion designer Oleg Cassini. So Grace gets married in what is called the wedding of the century. We're going to have another one of those on this list in a minute. Hold hold your royal horses. Yeah, but she calls it the carnival of the century, and it's easy to understand why. She arrives in Monaco on a ship with an entourage of 66 people. And the law and tradition of the country has that a civil ceremony comes before the religious ceremony. So that first event takes place on April 18th, 1956, and it's in the throne room of the palace, and it's presided by a high court official, and she wears this very sharp beige lace dress and hat. Um, It looks like something she'd wear in a movie almost. Um, And then they appear, they wave on the balcony to the crowd. And then the big ceremony, the religious one, happens the next day. And that's the one that you'd probably recognize pictures from. Right. And at the ceremony, there were two thousand reporters. That's more reporters than there were guests. But the guest list did have some very important people on it, some VIPs for that day and age. Cary Grant, Gloria Swanson, Ava Gardner, Conrad Hilton, Aristotle Onassis. But not in attendance, notably, it was Queen Elizabeth II. It was a little too déclassé for royalty. She supposedly thought there were just too many movie stars Too many movie stars. That's never held me back from attending any events. But this, I mean, with all this press, with all these stars there. This is sort of the first major press event that we, you know, like we could think of later weddings. Well, I mean, the wedding we was might talk filmed about by MGM. Yeah, it, it's it's this big to-do. It's filmed by MGM. It's broadcast live to 30 million people in Europe. And bars even make up this signature cocktail called the Princess Cocktail with bourbon and grenadine and fresh cream. Does not sound very good to me. (laughs) It sounds cool and icy like Grace Kelly, though. So at this grand cathedral ceremony, Grace wore an ivory gown made of silk taffeta and lace, and it was designed by the famous Hollywood costumer Helen Rose. It took six weeks and 36 seamstresses to make. It required 25 yards of silk taffeta, 100 yards of silk net, 125-year-old rose point lace from a museum. I mean, I just bought some Halloween costume fabric this weekend. Two yards? I'm trying to imagine buying 100 yards of fabric and for before, a dress. Before Grace Kelly... Uh, no one really did the big poofy ball gowns yeah. for a wedding. This was unheard of. And today that style is sort of alternately called ball gown or princess style. And when you hear it referred to princess style, that's based off Grace Kelly's wedding. How about that? Mm-hmm. Thank you, TLC Candace. I tip my, my hat to you. So the couple... It's not a particularly intimate wedding, surprise, with all these people here. The couple stay directed at the high altar and... Kelly was visibly nervous during the whole thing. She just was kind of whispering, um, just uh, if, if you, you can actually look up videos of it and she looks like eyes on the prize, not looking <laughs> anywhere else. Like she's afraid she'll fall over or something. Um, but at the end, this message from the Pope was read out loud. And then the couple drove off through Monte Carlo in a convertible and left their honeymoon, which was 
a multi-week cruise aboard a yacht. And on their honeymoon, she became pregnant with Caroline. And she later popularized the Hermes bag, the Kelly, because she would she would use this really oversized purse to hide her what we today would call her baby bump. That would in a tabloid today. There'd be a little arrow. A little arrow. With a question mark. Is she? Isn't she? Yeah. But despite the joys of carrying a child and, and giving birth to a child, married life was a little sour for Grace Kelly. Yeah, she'd hoped that maybe she'd still be able to work a little bit, go to Hollywood every now and then and make a movie. Um, her husband was not into that idea. In fact, supposedly he banned her films from even showing in Monaco. Um, and she later told her friend John Foreman, I know where I'm going to be every single day for the rest of my life. And that was not said in like a happy way. I'm going to be in Monaco where it's sunny and beautiful. <laughs> Um, again, Monaco, smaller than Central Park. So we can imagine kind of a restrictive, if glamorous, life. And she died tragically in a car crash in 1982. And that untimely segue brings us to the last wedding on our list. And by now, you may have guessed what it is. One of the biggest wedding spectacles of our time. And that would be the wedding of Diana and Charles. So Charles and Di knew each other when they were they were children, and they weren't exactly close in age when they got married. Uh, she was 20 and he was 32, but they had associated, their families had, so they were not unfamiliar with each other. And when he proposed with a giant oval sapphire surrounded by 14 diamonds, thank you very much, she was a teacher. So she's coming from not a modest exactly background, but something that is not quite in the public eye to something that is incredibly on the forefront of British society. Definitely. And on her wedding day, again, like Sarah was saying, you can see footage of Grace Kelly's wedding online. You can also see plenty of footage of Charles and Di's wedding. And she wore one of the most famous wedding gowns of all time. It was an ivory silk gown designed by David and Elizabeth Emmanuel. It had lace accents and big puffy sleeves, hello, 1980s, gathered with little ribbons. And unfortunately, the designers didn't accommodate for the fact that she would be transported to the wedding site in a glass carriage. So when she got out, she was a little wrinkled. It must have been hot and uncomfortable in the carriage, And not to mention that 25-foot train taking up that much space. And the dress was made in just four months. And these people who designed the gown, the Emanuels, they were the same designers who put together the dress that she wore when Charles and I announced their formal engagement. And this was sort of the start of maybe uh, a couple of people in British society raising an eyebrow at Diana because the dress was very highly criticized. People said it was too low cut and it was black. And at the time, black didn't necessarily mean that you were a chic and meant that you were in mourning. I think Diana later proved black was one of the best colors on her, though. Definitely. So this wedding was televised in 58 countries. It was an hour and a half long ceremony that had 3,500 in attendance and 750 million watching on TV. And I believe I neglected to say the date. So let me correct that right now. July 29th, 1981. And not only is this a national holiday in Britain, but it's a total moneymaker. There's so much memorabilia going around uh, displaying the new royal couple porcelain plates and cups and stamps and photo collages. And in one story I, I read, there was a woman who had bid $700 for a slice of cake from the wedding. Yeah. And of course, Di was attended by a lot of bridesmaids, too. And most of them were 
had royal connections, but not all of them. There was one little girl named Sarah Jane who was the daughter of Charles Friend and longtime horse trainer. And she actually kept up a correspondence with Diana after the wedding and basically explained to Diana that she was miserable at boarding school. And Di had done her time at boarding school, too, so she commiserated and had a sweet letter-writing campaign with her. Yeah, But if you believe in... Uh, fate or telltale signs. There were a couple of gaffes during the ceremony that perhaps predicted the marriage would not be a fairy tale one. Yeah, she got Charles's names out of order. She did. He has a lot, of course. Yes, and the name that she essentially called him was his father's name. And then he forgot to kiss her at the altar. They later did a public kiss on the balcony of Buckingham Palace, but that was a gaffe for sure. Definitely. But after those gaffes, after the ceremony is complete and they make their appearance to the public, they go on their honeymoon at the family estate in Broadlands. And then they go on a 12-day Mediterranean cruise, much like Grace Kelly again. Kind of an abbreviated Mediterranean cruise, but still. Um, and Diana's brother, who was only about 16 at the time of the wedding, later revealed that she had a terrible headache for the entire thing because she had this tiara pinching her her temples and head. Yeah, she wasn't used to wearing a, a tiara, obviously. And even though it came from the Spencer family, it was um, one of their heirlooms. heirlooms yeah. yeah. Uh, we know from Di's later works in her life, she was probably more comfortable in the garb of a humanitarian worker than wearing her tiara, although she did cut a fabulous figure in an evening gown as well. She, just, she wore so many hats, uh, not to make a pun there, but she did. Uh, and then... The marriage, again, this is another one that ends on a sad note. It did not work out. And you all probably know why. Charles supposedly had kept up his romantic dalliances with Camilla Parker Bowles, to whom he is now married. So the couple separated in the late 1980s and formally announced their split in 1992. And then on August 31st, 1997, Diana was killed in a car crash. Yeah, and Charles got a little credit after that for insisting that she be given a royal funeral, even though that wasn't the protocol since they were a divorced couple. And that also was televised on TV and, and the world watched on very sadly to see the princess gone way too early. But it kind of brings us to our close here. There's another possible royal wedding on the on the horizon. At least all the gossip mags keep on covering it, trying to guess when it is. And that is, of course, between Charles and Diana's eldest son, William, and his longtime girlfriend, Kate Middleton. Kate Middleton. So we'll see if we have another royal wedding to add to this list. Hopefully, if it does take place, it'll be a much happier marriage than some of these. And a less wrinkled wedding gown. Definitely. <laughs> All right. Well, I guess that about wraps it up. Do you have anything else you want to add? Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it's been fun, Candace. Um, if you want to email us or suggest any other favorite royal wedding stories, you can find us on Twitter at Mist in History. We're on Facebook. And we also, of course, have an old-fashioned email address. It's historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. And if you want to look for any of Candace's great wedding content, you can find it at TLC. And if you want to learn a little more about royalty, go to the homepage and search for royalty at www.howstuffworks.com. The HowStuffWorks.com iPhone app is coming soon. Get access to our content in a new way. Articles, videos, and more all on the go. Check out the latest podcasts and blog posts and see what we're saying on Facebook and Twitter. Coming soon to iTunes.